We've been working through the letter of 1 John and being encouraged as uh, believers in our faith to live lives of joy. This is the purpose of the letter, that uh, children of God would, would walk in the ways of Christ, emulate Christ, forsake the darkness, live in the light, these powerful metaphors that John gives. And uh, we've been walking through that letter, which up until this point has been very instructional and very literal. And the text I'm about to read shifts from being quite literal to metaphorical. And we know this even in your English translation sometimes, depending on your translation, the format changes to show you that it's poetry. And uh, the significance of this, I'll borrow from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who in his commentary on this letter would say that this text I'm about to read to you is like magnificent parentheses. The purpose of parentheses, as you are writing, is that, of course, you know this, you are either putting supplementary information or clarifying information or perhaps an illustration, right? Jack goes to the grocery store to get some watermelons, bracket, notices they look like they were harvested by rubber mallets, bracket, doesn't buy any watermelons. So that parentheses gives us a picture. So that's what is going on as uh, John's very practical letter inviting us into spiritual disciplines to live to the glory of Christ is met now with this uh, metaphorical picture in the middle of uh, his teaching in the letter. First John chapter 2, starting in verse 12, reading to 14. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is God's word. So I mentioned that the letter moves from uh, instruction that is literal to this poem that is metaphorical, but intended to be taken very seriously. At first glance, it looks like women are being totally excluded. Uh, but these are, these are pictures that we're given to think deeply about. The scriptures often will use uh, various gender metaphors to get us to sit in the meaning of the metaphor. For example, as well as literal teaching. So an example of literal teaching to men and women, Titus chapter 2, where, they want, uh, where the instruction is for the older men to be mentors to the younger men in the ways of God. Literal. Older women mentor the younger women in the ways of God. Literal, right? Literal instruction. Uh, there are then uh, letters, uh, books like the book of Proverbs, which is given to us through the voice of a woman, right? Metaphorical. There are a hundred instances throughout Scripture where we are referred to as the bride of Christ. The church is a she. We are to sit in what it means to be Christ's bride. Metaphorical. Uh, as, as a couple examples. And this here now, is as it's relating to children, fathers, and young men, is uh, metaphorical, but it's something that we're supposed to think about deeply and seriously. Uh, what this gives us is three ages depicting three spiritual stages. Childlike infancy, young men, youth-like spiritual vitality, and then fathers, spiritual maturity. So in a letter that is very practical about the church forsaking their sin, confessing their sin, 
loving the people sitting in the seats next to them and where this letter is headed, as I've been saying for many weeks, not loving the ways of the world, walking in light, being ministers in the darkness. This invites us to just pause for a minute and ask, do some inventory. Am I like a spiritual child? Am I in spiritual infancy? Am I, is there, am I like a, a youth? Is there spiritual vitality? Am I, am I in, uh, like a father at spiritual maturity? So it invites us into these three stages to consider these, uh, or these three age groups to consider these three uh, spiritual stages. And as I begin to unfold this, I want to remind you of John's literary style. I told you that it's circular. And the significance of that is because there are important and fundamental things that we grab in each phase of our spiritual growth that we never really move past. We just move more deeply into the significance of them. So when, when, we, when we're working through here, I'm going to invite you to be very introspective as to what could this be saying to me in my spiritual condition and my spiritual growth. But I, I want to encourage you not to just sit back and say, okay, well, um, once I move from phase one of being a child to phase two, uh, being a young person to phase three, then I'm, I just sort of live in phase three and I don't need the other phases anymore. Because what we are given in each of these uh, phases, we continually need just in more deep and rich ways. Next Sunday is going to be Super Bowl Sunday. And these professional athletes are going to hear things that they've been hearing since they were playing football when they were eight years old. The commentators are going to say things. At some point in the game, the commentator is going to say, now watch the way that he protects the football. Well, I mean, this is fundamental. I mean, this is, you can't, you learn that when you're six years old playing football. But they're still, going to, they're still going to comment on it in the Super Bowl next Sunday. Like it's like this critical thing, which it is. And I think this is the, the way in which we want to consider the fundamentals of our spiritual growth and uh, our life in Christ. So let's consider these, um, let's consider these stages. So let's look at this, this first phase, the marks of spiritual infancy. Uh, you see this in verse 12. In verse 12, we see that in spiritual infancy, there's an, there's an understanding of the reforming power of God's love and of his forgiveness. And this is critical. This is important. It says in verse 12, you know that your sins have been forgiven, right? I'm writing to you because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. And when we're like spiritual infants, this is like so critical for us to understand. We're like children who need to be secure and not insecure. There's, in the secu- there's a security and assurance because of his advocacy on account of his name. Imagine a, a small child who grows up knowing they're loved. And then imagine a small child who grows up wondering if they're loved. And how might those two children relate to social pressures? The child who knows that they're loved relates to social pressures completely differently than a child who's not sure. So we're given this picture of like this assurance that we need and we are on account of his name that we are continually uh, understanding the deep richness of because we're, we're being invited to move out of spiritual infancy into living a life of love and good works, obeying Christ and walking in his ways. And here's the thing. If our hearts haven't, haven't grasped that we are forgiven on account of his name, then all of our loving is probably not going to be loving it's going to be leveraging. Because we're, at the back of our minds, going to be not sure if we're forgiven on account of his name. 
And so it's going to be difficult to mature into a life of love and of good works and of service and of giving. If at the end of the day we think that there's something that we've got to earn. That rather than just doing art that's put on heaven's fridge because we love the Father, we're doing the art to go on heaven's fridge in the hope that God will open the fridge and feed us as children. And so all of our love is not actually love because those that we're loving and serving, we're really using as a means of feeling like we are validated and accepted by God and these sorts of things. So this is core and critical to Christian faith, this understanding that we are uh, loved. And so that's why he calls it like being a child because this is, like the, this is the starting place. We don't spend our whole uh, Christian lives here. The gospel is not only the entrance into faith, it's the power uh, by which we are uh, living our faith out. Every week as we're coming to confession, all of a sudden we find we need that childlike assurance. When you and I fail and sin and falter, when we feel like we are not welcome, when we feel embarrassed to be before God to confess our sin, when we feel like we're hanging out at someone's house here in community groups, and someone says, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? Is anybody going through any struggles? And you are, and you could share and say, please pray for me. I'm struggling with this sin. But you see, if you haven't grasped like the dear child that you are forgiven on account of his name, you're not going to open up to your brothers and sisters and go, yeah, actually, you know what? The, this week was a train wreck. Here's what I'm struggling with. Please pray for me. So you see, it's fundamental, but we never really lose the need for it. We just need to walk it out more deeply in different ways. Let's move on. The, from the mark of spiritual infancy to the mark of the spiritual vitality that comes through the metaphor of being the young men who are strong, who have overcome uh, the evil one. You know, the primary focus of the child is, am I okay, am I loved, am I justified? The primary focus of the youth now, you see this, is the overcoming. They have a different focus. They're like, I know what I have in Christ. Now I need to overcome some stuff. I mean, I don't want to just live perpetually in these struggles and in these things. Either the, the struggles in my own heart and in my own mind, or be consumed by, you know, that are inside me, or consumed by the struggles that are in the world outside me. Now the, 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 the youth is concerned about these things. You see it in verse 14. If you look at verse 14, when this uh, plays out further, it says that, the, that that spiritual vitality of youth, you've overcome, look what it says, you are strong and the word of God lives in you. So there's a powerful abiding of God's word now. See, when you're a child, you're like, oh, thank God for grace, I'm forgiven. But once you, well, you never really move past the need for that. We don't, there's no grace graduates. But once you mature, you're like, thank God I'm forgiven. But now I need his word to abide in me so that I can overcome some things. And so we are concerned now with the words of Christ, the ways of Christ, abiding in Christ, right? Reflecting Christ. This is, it's here in this, in this stage that the word of God that is abiding, it's teaching us. There's this emphasis in overcoming. It's like we're, we're conscious at this point in our spiritual growth, that we're not slaves who, to our own sin and our impulses. We just have to kind of go through life being overcome by our sin. It's at this stage in our spirituality, we're like, actually, you know, I'm going to fight this now. It's like there's that youthful energy. It's like when young people get passionate about things, they're like, I'm going to fight for this. I'm going to fight about this. I'm gonna, I have seemingly endless energy to constantly combat this thing that I am now against and overcome. And so that is a picture uh, spiritually of the overcoming that comes as we are united to Christ and we grow this way. We know that we're always going to struggle with our sin. The struggle never goes away, but a sign of the maturity is we're willing to, we're willing to struggle. The sign of lawlessness and, you know, antinomianism is there's no struggle. 
That's getting back to earlier in the letter, the walking in light or walking in darkness. Walking in light, you're, you'll struggle all day. Walking in darkness, there's no struggle. What sin? Well, the reason, we're like, the, reason the person in darkness is saying what sin is because the, the Word of God is not living in them. The Word of God is not abiding in There's no appetite for it. We're not reading it and rereading it and being encouraged by it. Uh, it's at this point in, the, in the, the image of the youth that's fighting to overcome because of the Word of God, there's this resolve that's, that's, uh, that's in us. I told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because, well, for three reasons, really. I mean, one, I'm a dad, so I'm going to tell a story. Secondly, I'm a preacher. That's strike two. Um, and then thirdly, I'm a storyteller, so there's just no chance of me not telling stories again. So anyways, if you've heard this, just smile and nod. But when I was growing up, uh, we had a washing machine in our living room. Washing machines don't belong in the living room, of course, but it broke and it got moved to the living room. And I don't really remember why it stopped there, but it stopped it, and it sat there for a while. It's, the washing machine sat in the living room for so long. I don't really remember how long, but so long that one Christmas we decorated it. Just became a part of the living room. And I walked by that washing machine many times. But I just kind of accepted that there was a washing machine in my living room. And then I had some friends over and they were kind of point out the washing machine. And it was like all of a sudden I was cognizant that perhaps there should not be a washing machine in the living room. And then one day, I don't really know why, but it's like everything came together. And I, you know what? A washing machine should not be in the living room. And so I summoned up all of my, you know, 16, 17 year old youth strength and vitality. And I opened the front door and I rolled the washing machine out the front door. And it smashed down the stairs and I rolled it and I just kept on rolling it like a big boulder out onto the street to the curb. But it, I don't know, it was there for months. You see, the reason I'm, I'm sharing that story is because when the Word of God abides in you, that means you're reading it. That means that you are committed to having it feed you in such a way that the sin that's been overcoming you, because it just sits in your life like a washing machine for months or years and just kind of as a fixture in your life, and you don't really ever struggle or fight against all of a sudden, the Word of God, as you are reading it and rereading it and meditating it and, and, and reflecting on it, it, if you are abiding, if the Word of God is abiding in you, it's doing something in you. The abiding is feeding and forming and reforming and challenging and convicting. Like it's doing things. It's alive. It's powerful. This is what it does. And so as we're reading through it, you, know, you read through the Old Testament and in the New Testament, as you're kind of reading through it and reading through it, you're... You know, you don't grab it all. It's not like a, being a mechanic that knows where every bolt in the engine goes necessarily. But it's that as you're reading through it, the Word is reading you. You come across the Ten Commandments over and over, and you start to, it begins to do work in you. In what ways am I not loving God and loving my neighbor? You go through this story after story in the Old Testament where people are a mess, and they're constantly sinning. And even the people that God, are, God is using in the Old Testament are terrible in some way or another. Every quote-unquote hero in the Old Testament is deeply flawed. And you keep getting to the end of that story and going, we need somebody better than this. This is the purpose of the Old Testament scriptures to provoke us. But we don't just look at that and say, ooh, gross. You look at that and you go, now, how, how, can, how is that in me? See, and then the Word of God begins to abide, and you move into the New Testament, you see the life of Christ, and you hear the teachings of Christ, and you desire to emulate and reflect Christ. But you and I are still sinners, but there's just something that rises up inside us like a youth, youthful vitality that goes, yeah, I'm just not okay with this. This is not okay. 
And maybe I thought it was okay for months or years or my whole life. Maybe there's blogs and podcasters and people who are saying, actually, it's fine. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, no, maybe, wait a second, maybe it's not fine. Maybe I need a biblical view of justice and and mercy for the poor, the outcast, and the refugee. Maybe I need to have a biblical view of of my wealth and my resources. Do they actually belong to me or or am I a steward of everything that God has given to me? How ought I to relate to my time? Should I be willing to be inconvenienced? Do I just get swept away with the cultural conversation of the fluidity of sexual ethics? Or do I recognize that my sexuality is really only a small part of who I am, but it's not the totality of who I am? And I'm not fulfilled on the basis of my sexual identity, but rather I can live to the glory of God, loving Him and loving His ways, and realize that totally apart from my sexual identity, I'm a beloved child of God. And I don't need to get swept up into the cultural narratives on any of these topics, but actually I can let the Word of God reform me and for me to consider these things. We could go on and on and on. John doesn't give a long list. I'm just giving you some examples. But it invites us into deep introspection. Where's the washing machine in my life? And ought it to be there. When you think about how the passion of young people plays out, they be, it permeates everything. They're all about it. Maybe it hits the wall in their room. Maybe it affects their wardrobe. The way they spend their money shows up in conversations. It's in their Instagram feed. I mean, when young people get passionate about something, it just kind of starts to bleed into all the areas of their life. They, like, they closely associate with this object of their passion. This is the picture of maturing from just saying, praise God for his advocacy, that by grace I'm saved by faith alone. Not that we ever move past that, but we build upon it and say, now because that's true, how do I now live and overcome? Invites us into this picture. Uh, theologian Thomas Cranmer would talk about this forsaking of sin and living the glory of our Savior with the phrase the expulsive power of a new affection stick with the metaphor of the young person who's strong the young person who's all about things their, their bedroom has got posters of horses everywhere and then all of a sudden they become about something else and next thing you know all the horse posters are gone and up goes the new stuff the expulsive power of the new affection like a linebacker jumping into a kiddie pool. Something's leaving. This is the power of the gospel. This is the power of God's word. That as we read it and meditate upon it, this is what it does in our heart and in our life. The last year as a family, we went through the whole Bible together. We thought that would be a good practice uh, for our, our, our sons to, to read through the, enti- the entire thing. And this year we're reading through it again, but we're curating it. We got partway through Kings, and uh, you know, you're working through Kings, and you're muscling through it, and at the end of each chapter, kind of sounds like, are these things not written in the book of the Chronicles? And so the kids are like, please, Dad, don't make us read the Chronicles. We already read it now. If it's already written in the book of Chronicles, we got it. So this year, you know, we're going to curate it. We're curating as we go through. But you just read it and reread it, and you begin to see things, and see things because it is reading us. The expulsive power of the new affection. Let's move on to the final thing, which is the mark of spiritual maturity, this image of the Father. Spiritual maturity. You look at verse 13, it says that the spiritual maturity looks like knowing Him who is from the beginning. Knowing God, this knowledge of God. What is this? What does it mean that in the end there's the knowledge? It's not that spiritual maturity means I don't need to know God's advocacy and forgiving grace. Of course I do. 
It also doesn't mean I move away from the youthful fatality where there's no more fighting and desiring for overcoming. No, there is. It is. It's just I'm not really actually fixated on that. In my maturity, I'm fixated on Him. I want to know Him. I'm not so consumed with what God can give me because it's the giver that I want now. This is the apostle in his old age saying this. If you go back earlier in the letter and you sort of say, how does this play out early in the letter? He uses the word fellowship. I've been talking about that last couple of weeks. Fellowship with the Father, fellowship with the Son. See, this is it now in maturity. The old grizzled apostle is like, I want you to experience what I'm experiencing, which is this knowledge of God that's leading me into this place of profound rest, profound confidence, profound joy in a world that drains your joy. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that God's written eternity in the, the soul of the, of the human being. We have this knowledge of God. Romans 1. We all have a knowledge of God. Maybe we suppress the knowledge, right? Epicurean theology or Epicurean philosophy. You know, th- this would have already been in the water. Epicurus was one of the ancient philosophers who said, actually, there is no afterlife. I know you're all pontificating about that, but after we die, that's it. We just don't exist anymore. That was Epicurus. Really one of the earliest philosophers who, in a world where everybody was sort of spiritual in some way, he's like, no, there's nothing. This knowledge of God, what does it mean if God, if God has written eternity in our hearts? And even if we've sort of suppressed that knowledge and we live in a city that suppresses the knowledge and sort of lives in a radical dislocation of that knowledge, right? We came from nowhere for no purpose, evolved for no reason, no creator, blind chance. When we die, there's nothing. We don't exist. There's no evidence in the cosmos. A billion years from now, humanity ever existed. We're gone. But right here and now, boy, we're going to just fight for all these things that matter and meaning and purpose. We're addicted to purpose and love and meaning as humans because God is put eternity in our hearts. So what does it mean then? This knowledge of God. The apostle wants us to know him, to have fellowship with him. I'll give you a modern day parable. The parable of two Susans. All right, Susan Mallory and Susan Dunk. Susan Mallory, born 1970, Los Angeles, California. A writer of female fiction. Has a poodle. Loves animal rights. Passionate about them. And I know that because I read her bio. So I know some things about Susan Mallory. Susan Dunk. Let me tell you. I don't know things about Susan Dunk. I have been walking with Susan Dunk since I was 18. Like I know. I can go into the city and look at an outfit and be like, she would love it or not love it. I can look at a list of menu items and go, she'd order that, order that, wouldn't order that, order that. I can look at a movie trailer and be like, she's interested in that, she's not interested in that. I can look at a lot of things. I can just go through the city because of living life with Susan Dunk, united in marriage to Susan Dunk, loving Susan Dunk. Like, because that of the, just the f- familiar fellowship and relationship with Susan Dunk, I'm a, I am acutely aware of how she would feel about a lot of things. And I could actually make decisions based upon what I think she would in that moment sort of want and desire because I've been with her for so long. And this is the difference between knowing God like we all know Susan Mallory and knowing him because his word is abiding in us. And we, over time, we learn to love it. When I was a teenager, I wasn't nearly as... I wouldn't speak with this kind of excitement that I'm speaking about today. When I was a teenager, and I was like, yeah, I go to church, and I read the Bible. Everyone, my mom grabs the Bible. I roll my eyes back. Oh, oh. So, like, this is like a journey. 
in faith. But over time, and that love and the appetite as it grows, as, as the fellowship becomes more and more uh, real. As we grow into spiritual maturity, we're no longer fixated on our need for God's gifts. We're settled in our possession of the gifts. Now we're fixated on the giver. Now we're fixated on Christ. He is the one that occupies our mind. We desire to live to his glory. And it is from that passion we learn and desire to care and love the people that are sitting in the seats around us. For those of you who are uh, at home this morning, but your members at Redeemer, the same is true for you. That this matters to you. That you will take time. I mean, we're only in church, you know, an hour and a half out of our week. So this is, you know, Christian faith is certainly not less than the corporate gathering. It cannot be less than this corporate gathering. But it is infinitely more than this corporate, corporate gathering. It is living life with one another and giving for each other and then desiring to emulate Christ and bring his, uh, the goodness of his gospel to the city. Because in, in spiritual maturity, we're oriented towards giving. You talk to young kids or immature people, and they can tell you what they want from your birth, for their birthday eight months before the birthday. They, hey, what do you want for Christmas? It's June. What are you talking about? Oh, actually, I have a list right here. Here's all the things that I want. Because they're just constantly obsessed. What's the next little thing I'm going to get? Like children. Now, when we're spiritual children, we do need that. God, what are you going to give me? God, how are you going to help me? God, are you going to forgive me? Do you accept me? Like, that makes sense. And that's actually good. But once you mature, when you talk to a mature person... He said, hey, what do you want for your birthday? They're like, my birthday? They're like, yeah, it's today. They're like, oh, no, I'm just kidding. They're like, well, they're not so obsessed. With they start saying different things. You talk to elderly, mature people. They're like, for my birthday, I want you know, my family to come and have a coffee with me. This is spiritual maturity to give. The cross-shaped, outward-faced, curved-out life of Christ. And there is soul-anchoring power in enjoying and glorifying in the giver because you are convinced and settled and steady in the knowledge that the giver will give you what you need when you need it and so you are going for our Matthew 6 vibe walks look at the birds look at the flowers your heavenly father will take care of you he loves you and because that is true and his grace is irreversible and his advocacy is amazing and he will empower you by the spirit to overcome yes it might take months yes you have struggles that might take years yes there may be things we struggle with our whole life but we're willing to fight it and because all of that is true we look at the birds we look at the flowers and say i'm in my life is in the hands of god and this is soul anchoring power this is what enables us to curve out of ourselves and love one another so that when the letter moves on towards our, our position in the city, we can actually be ministers in the city. This poem in the middle of the letter is like this magnificent parentheses, inspired in God breathed, so that whatever stage we're in, whatever season we're in, his word and his spirit will ensure that our joy will be well supplied. Your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. You know him who is from the beginning. You are strong and the word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Amen. Let's pray.